When I say that we're leading this movement, it absolutely is happening and it's incredible to see these young leaders step into the tech space because when girls learn to code, they don't just become computer programmers or technologists, they actually become change makers. Central to everything we do at Girls Who Code is our sisterhood that is really rooted in the idea that you can use tech to change your community and the world. This is In Her Element, a podcast from BCG. I'm Corinne Lyons. And I'm Suchi Srinivasan. Each episode, we have meaningful and vulnerable conversations with women leaders in digital business and technology. This week is the final episode of season two, and we're speaking to the amazing Dr. Tarika Barrett, CEO of Girls Who Code. Tarika has a deep passion for education and equality and works tirelessly in the local and global community to help girls, young women, and non-binary people achieve their dreams. Girls Who Code is a global organization that has reached over 580,000 young people. It offers a free summer immersion program and after-school clubs that help their students learn how to code in their own way. Here's my conversation with Tarika. I'm Dr. Tarika Barrett, CEO of Girls Who Code. Can you please tell us a little bit about your early life and especially about the women in your family? I'm really fortunate to come from a line of strong and hardworking women. You know, my mom was the first in our family to go to college and to get a graduate degree. And I still, even today, am amazed by that because her own mother never made it past the sixth grade. Mama, as we called my um, maternal grandmother, was born and raised in rural Jamaica in this really small farming community called Lambs River. It's about an hour's drive from Montego Bay. And after her mother died, Mama was forced to drop out of school and help her father raise her seven younger siblings. And, you know, if you can picture this, our family lived off the land. So we're talking about cultivating staples of Jamaican cuisine. So things like yams, sweet potatoes, callaloo, and cabbage. And after the harvest, Mama, who was still a teenager herself, would have to travel for hours by bus or by truck to the local market in Kingston, where she would actually sell the family's crops. And even though Mama's own schooling had been cut short, she somehow understood that education could pry open the doors of opportunity. You know, when her kids were much older, before any type of play or fun would happen, she would always make sure to ask them if they had finished their schoolwork or homework before letting them go. But that check, you know, my grandmother, a farm girl with a sixth grade education, managed to instill this deep reverence for learning in her children and frankly, her children's children. And I am very much the result of her persistence. And I am so grateful for what was given to my mom because they became the things that my mom then gave to me. Thank you so much for sharing that history with us. And so as a CEO of Girls Who Code, you occupy this interesting position of being a tech-facing CEO with an educator's background. Can you talk us through that journey and that led you to this place? So my passion for the work I do now started when I was a girl growing up in Brooklyn, New York, but also Kingston, Jamaica. And I suspect you might know this, but there's nothing like living in another country to shape who you are in your worldview. I am very much the proud daughter of Jamaican immigrants and spent my childhood between these two places, Kingston and Brooklyn, and how I understand opportunities and issues of race and class and equity were definitely formed by my upbringing. 
And growing up, I was really lucky. My mom instilled in me the power of mentorship and the importance of fighting for equity and making change. And after I attended high school in Kingston, Jamaica, I returned to the U.S. for college. And every day, I can recall making that hour-long bus ride from the housing project where we live to the campus of Brooklyn College, where I got a chance to go to school with other kids who were also from working-class families, you know, kids who were their first in their families to go to college, kids who were beating the odds just by being there. And it didn't hit me until much later what simply walking through those doors meant to so many of our families. And that foundation, you know, informed my journey into education. And I would later come to understand that focusing on issues of gender and racial equity in education would be my life's work. And that's a dream that took shape across a number of different experiences. I started as a community organizer, and then I was a classroom teacher. I earned my PhD in teaching and learning from NYU, and I've managed to work on education reform. And all of these experiences and milestones contributed to the moment that I find myself in now as CEO of Girls Who Code. So part of your entry into the world of tech involved you co-founding the first non-screen software engineering school. And I think it's important that we even anchor on that non-screen thing. Can you talk us through why you decided to do this and what it's meant to you? First and foremost, I come to this space as an educator and an activist and, you know, someone who's fought for equity in education my entire career. And I can't underscore enough that because my mom taught me not just the power of education, but also to go into spaces to see the type of work that was necessary but wasn't getting done and to believe that I could be the change I wanted to see. And so it was actually when I was at the New York City Department of Education that I got a chance to put those lessons into practice. And I worked with kids who, frankly, I'd say many people had written off. You know, most of these were poor black and brown kids who looked a lot like me when I was their age, a lot of them overage and undercredited with no shot of graduating on time. And I had this golden opportunity to lead the team that would design and launch a first-of-its-kind high school focused on software engineering. It was going to be a part of the then-mayor's plan to kind of make New York City a tech hub. To your point, when you asked this question, it quickly became apparent that this new school was intended for like potentially a whole different group of kids. It was going to be what we call a quote-unquote screened school, which would mean that kids would have to test in. Now, as an educator, I knew that solely relying on test scores were going to put certain kids, especially kids of color, at a disadvantage. And there are many reasons for this, right? Poverty disinvestment in low-income neighborhoods, racial bias in testing. So even though I knew it was going to risk turning off some of these key stakeholders who were super interested in launching the school, it was like this mashup of venture capitalists and tech entrepreneurs, I decided to fight against screening. And instead, I rallied support for our decision to open the school to any student interested in programming. I kid you not, (laughs) there were definitely some thinly veiled conversations about whether or not black and brown kids could even learn to code at the levels that folks desired. What I am proud to report, though, is that today, any teen in New York City interested in computer science can apply to attend the Academy for Software Engineering. And for the kids who are there, 95% of them are graduating on time. And helping to get that school off the ground was one of my proudest accomplishments as an educator. 
But it was also a huge lesson that we always have to exist at the intersection of opportunity and bravery, and that we have to disrupt the status quo whenever we get the chance. So can you start off by telling our listeners about Girl Suit Code? What does it do? Why did you decide to get into this work? Gosh, I am so proud to be the CEO of Girls Who Code, one of the largest girls organizations on the planet. We are an international nonprofit organization working to close a gender gap in new entry-level tech roles by 2030. We are leading the movement to inspire, educate, and equip students who identify as girls or non-binary with the computing skills to take on 21st century opportunities. Since we began in 2012, Girls Who Code has reached 580,000 students, of which we have 185,000 college and workforce age alumni. For us, by addressing this growing gender gap in tech, we're empowering our young people to seek out the thriving and exciting careers of the future, the ones that are going to afford them the upward mobility and improve quality of life that come with a career in tech. I have to say those numbers are positively astounding. You must be so incredibly proud. That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. And what kind of progress have you seen through this work as you've witnessed this transformation and this creation of this new entity? We think that we have almost single-handedly built this pipeline and activated and sparked interest in so many girls and non-binary students, and especially girls who've been historically underrepresented in tech. So more than 50% of the students we serve come from this group of historically marginalized students. And, you know, we have free programming across a range of ages. So we start as early as third grade in our free after-school clubs program, and that goes all the way through 12th grade. We also have our summer immersion program. That's our flagship. That's sort of how we started back in 2012. And, you know, if you can picture it, we would have, gosh, 80 classrooms across the country with 20 girls in each one. So we'd have like 1,600 girls learning computer science from like 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. And we covered all of it, robotics, Python, JavaScript, you know, HTML, CSS. And they'd be in some of the biggest companies that you can think of. And then the pandemic hit. We had to be really responsive to our community. And in terms of other impacts we've seen, it's amazing to have our young women and non-binary students now entering the workforce. And in response to that, we have both college-age programming through our Girls to Code College Loops, as well as workforce programming, like our Leadership Academy, or Work Prep, or Technical Interview Prep programs. And so, When I say that we're leading this movement, it absolutely is happening. And it's incredible to see these young leaders step into the tech space because when girls learn to code, they don't just become computer programmers or technologists. They actually become change makers. Central to everything we do at Girls Who Code is our sisterhood that is really rooted in the idea that you can use tech to change your community and the world. You touched on this briefly, things evolved in the program during the pandemic era, but so you transitioned also into the role of CEO. Can you talk us through that experience and some of those challenges? Gosh, who says yes to becoming a CEO during a pandemic? I did, which seemed incredibly insane. When I talked to our incredible founder, Reshma Sojani, we both had to look at each other's eyes and say, we both don't need to be working on this issue and that we have to continue to think on what's best in terms of having the kind of impact we want to have. And that, you know, one of the reasons I said yes 
in addition to wanting to lead this incredible organization, was representation and how much I knew it would matter to so many girls to have me step up and say yes to this opportunity. And programmatically, it was filled with challenges. I know that we weren't alone in terms of being a nonprofit that had to regroup and think about how we you know, tackled these really big problems that were amplified because of this health crisis. But for us at Girls Who Code, the first thing we did when the pandemic hit is that we actually listened to our community. We surveyed them and we asked them what they needed the most. And the responses that we got coupled with best practices in digital learning became the foundation for our virtual programming. You know, I mentioned this briefly, but we prioritize accessibility and flexibility, live and asynchronous instruction. We thought small group work would be critical as well as project-based learning. And everything in our data show that this quick pivot was needed, it worked. Central to everything we do at Girls Who Code is our sisterhood. And we prioritize that sisterhood and collaboration. And we build this really stable and accessible community for both our in-person students and online. And during that whole period of the pandemic, we increased the number of students served from 450,000 to 500,000. And our alumni numbers that were at 90,000 went all the way to 115,000. And I mentioned our numbers as of today that we're now at 580,000 and of those 185,000 are college and workforce age alums. And I think we did a huge body of work to change and shift the conversation about who belongs in the tech industry. It makes me think of when you talk about access and opportunities, did you have to get funding to supply laptops and computers? Corinne, that's such a good question. And historically, when we would run our summer programs, that was a big barrier. And so we were prepared for that and we asked those questions. I think that we definitely had students where we had to get machines to them, especially in the early part of the pandemic. But one thing that was good also is that we found that a lot of schools saw that crisis, right? And so a lot of young people were getting machines also from school because remember, everyone went virtual during the pandemic. But it was still a question we asked. We knew how important it was that be, because sometimes it's one thing to have a computer, but guess what also surfaced with the questions we asked? Sometimes the students didn't have a quiet place to work. Sometimes they had to take care of a younger sibling or they were working part-time you know, to help pay the bills. So it wasn't unheard of to literally hear from students who were working in a coffee shop and had to mute themselves to do our program or to do their classes, or to have a student or two drive into, let's say, a fast food parking lot to get Wi-Fi to be able to do their work. And I mentioned these stories just to kind of underscore that we always try to think of the scope and nature of what our girls, young women, and non-binary students are facing because the barriers don't always seem apparent, especially for folks who have access to these resources at their fingertips. We'd love to talk to you about mentors. Can you tell us about mentoring others and what that means to you? Oh my gosh. So fun fact, my mom actually founded the first ever mentoring organization in Kingston, Jamaica. So mentoring is like a deep, deep family practice for me. And certainly I never thought that I would be talking about being a mentor for anyone. So I love this question. I would say that I am in relationship with 
several young women, and some of them not so young women, with whom I don't even know if I'd call it mentorship as much as just being a thought partner, a colleague, and those have been reciprocal relationships that are deeply affirming to me. But I also currently do have a mentee, this wonderful, dynamic, fantastic young woman named Kaya Sumachayo. And my relationship with Kayasu is definitely, like the others I mentioned, one of mutual support. She has no idea how much she gives me. <laughs> I'm sure she would say, no, you give me all that. But it began when I was actually vice president of programs at Girls Who Code. And I had always heard about Kayasu and the great work that she was doing in our programs. And by the time I became CEO, we were in the middle of a pandemic. And yet Kayasu had still made it through our program. And for me, it was really important to learn about her and to be connected with her at that time more than ever before because I just felt like, frankly, the world was going through a period of disconnection. And so our relationship actually blossomed during the pandemic. And I learned about her challenges in this landscape. And we got a chance to talk about our joys and our sorrows and actually go beyond her journey as a woman in tech. And even during this time of the health crisis, I brought my older child, my son, to her graduation in D.C. And there she was beating the odds, being one of the few women to graduate with a computer science degree. And I could not have been more proud. And talking a little bit about mentorship more broadly, having a mentor can really provide you with the community that you need to get through. Sometimes it's the things that you're learning for the first time that you have questions about. Sometimes it's about a mentor helping prepare you for all kinds of challenges. I remember there was one conversation I had with Kayasu, gosh, not too long ago, where I was just peppering her with all these, like, mind you, she didn't ask for any of this, all this unwarranted financial advice as someone starting in her career, because I remember that no one talked to me about money or investing or what do you do with your first paycheck? And I didn't have someone to help me navigate that part of my life and career, but it's such a gift and a blessing to be able to give that advice to her as she's navigating the corporate world, because I know that sometimes that can make all the difference. But what about mentors that you've had? Has there been some special people in your life and in your journey, besides obviously the women in your life in terms of your family? But outside of that, I was just curious. I've been so blessed in that regard. I can point to a really early mentor that I had when I was studying to be a teacher of deaf and hard of hearing students. And I had a number of professors, some of whom were really challenging, but I had this ray of sunshine. Her name was Maria Hartman, and she was an instructor who really helped us understand how every student, just how to like shape a lens that was such, before we even talked about having a growth mindset or you know, student empowerment and agency in a very specific way, she embodied that in her instruction. So that was one early mentor. And then I can also remember someone with whom I'm still in contact. When I was writing my dissertation at NYU, I found out uh, that my then dissertation chair had left because she had found another opportunity. And for anyone who's done this, writing a dissertation can be such a solitary experience. Um, I was pregnant. (laughs) I had actually two children and did a PhD in four and a half years, if you can imagine this. And so much at the time was writing on me completing this dissertation so I could be gainfully employed. 
And I reached out to Dr. Leslie Santee Siskin, who I'd been working closely while I was um, at NYU. And she ended up being the reason that I got through it all. She was a mother of three kids of her own, grown-up kids. She understood deeply my need to be successful and to create a better future for my children. And she also helped me, and she understood how I needed to navigate the space to get the dissertation done, you know, to get out of my head to make the edits. I still use techniques that Leslie gave me to this day. And because she's an education expert, it's still so wonderful to have these honest, candid conversations about current events and the education space, or just to talk about my children and bond over our family stories. You can run an organization or even be CEO, but that doesn't mean that you don't need the support. I found this out pretty early in my journey, in my career, and you know, this relationship really affirms that. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. I heard this amazing thing that you have just come back from a sabbatical, which is so incredibly rare for CEOs and especially in the nonprofit sector. And I hope you had a restful time away. Can you talk us through about why you decided to take that time off and what it did for you? I still, I haven't like shaken off all of the glow. Like I thought I'd be back for like two days and then immediately feel as though I never left at all. One of the benefits that we have at Girls Who Code, it's a part of our Girls Who Code Anniversary Awards, is that when you hit year seven, you get to take this amazing sabbatical. And we deeply believe in self-care and cherishing our employees, and I'm so blessed to have been able to do this. And I actually shared my thoughts pretty recently about the effects of a sabbatical, and the title of it was, Sometimes the Best Way to Be Great at Your Job is (laughs) Simply to Stop Doing It. And... Studies increasingly show the positive effects of sabbatical on workers. And so it was nice to watch other colleagues also hit that seven-year employment milestone. And I saw them coming back feeling refreshed and rejuvenated and bringing new energy to their work. I was super excited when it was my turn, but I also had no idea what I was in for. And it's such a big undertaking to decide what you want to do, maybe not do. But what was really rewarding for me in the end was having the power to determine how I wanted to spend my time. I worked on this whole plan with my leadership coach and I did such a range of things, including nothing, which I never get a chance to do nothing, and that was glorious. I napped. I had really good meals and delicious cocktails. I did a solo trip to Woodstock and then allowed my desperate kids to come and stay for a couple days with me because they missed their mom. I got to see my mom in Jamaica for a bit of it. I took the Science of Well-Being course at Yale. I also read a lot. I took an Italian cooking class, and it was so fun to have this range. All of it, some of it challenging, but some of it deeply affirming. And so I have to say two thumbs up for anyone thinking about taking a sabbatical. It's like a Tarika renaissance. Like you got to like... (laughs) Pull all these things that were going to just like imbibe and imbue this like beautiful new, I don't know, facets of your personality. That's amazing. <laughs> I love that. So what support do you feel like is lacking and would allow more senior women to take sabbaticals? Why are sabbaticals so rare? It's one of those things where I think it's a work culture thing, but I can't take um, gender out of it because when you think about what the research points to, 
there's this gender difference in leave study conducted by the Department of Labor that they did in 2020. And they found that women were more likely to be penalized for medical and family leave than their male counterparts. And think about that. That's leave that you're entitled to. And yet women saw uh, really negative impacts as a result. And with substantially fewer women receiving full pay. So women get something like 32% compared to men who get 55% of pay when they decide to take leave. And when you look at single women who take leave without pay, that's even higher than that of partnered women. And single women are five times as likely to lose their jobs. And it's hard, right, when you have financial ramifications combined with a lot of negative stigma that can be associated with women taking leave and caring for their families or themselves. And so I think that sometimes it can mean that women opt out of personal and professional care in the form of time. And sometimes there's this assumption that women are seen as weak, that will be seen as not being able to successfully climb the ladder Or we'll just risk the ability to be financially stable if we take a pause, when in fact the opposite should be true. In my experience, one thing that was fantastic, especially being CEO and taking a lengthy sabbatical, guess what? Everyone gets organized, right? All of a sudden, your succession planning gets better. People step up and get a chance to flex leadership muscles that they otherwise wouldn't. I actually think the organization is stronger because we have senior leaders taking sabbaticals than if we didn't, because those dependencies are suddenly dealt with, thought about, and you have a distribution of leadership that you sometimes don't see when you have leaders reticent to take time off. Can you tell us about a time when you felt like you were in your element? I am totally going to talk about something that is not work-related, but maybe I'll bring back a little bit of work into it. But when I think about when I've been in my element, I have to confess it's in planning a party or event where from the minute that I know what we're doing, and I'll give you like, picture it, kid's birthday party. One of my children has an upcoming birthday party. The first question I ask is, what's the theme? (laughs) Because there has to be a theme. And I've done all the themes you can imagine. I have done rock star, under the sea, Minecraft. I've done princess. I even did one year, my son said Illuminati, and I delivered. So think of a concept and I will bring it to life. Soup to nuts. You know, I remember at oh one my point God, we I built so much. a checkerboard Minecraft cake that almost made me cry because it was so hard and tiny figurines that we crafted by hand. I even took white electrical tape and created pixelation on our floor-to-ceiling windows before anyone was even that obsessed with Minecraft. And Girls Who Code actually had a 10-year anniversary not too long ago. It was called Code Fair. And we saw about 3,000 people come through our weekend of really incredible activations. And, you know, especially our girls and young women and non-binary students, it was phenomenal. And that was gosh, how do you plan a party and event of that scale to celebrate 10 years of impact? But we did it. And that was a moment where I absolutely felt like I was in my element. That was my conversation with Tarika. Suchi, what were some of your key takeaways from that conversation? Wow, what an amazing conversation, Corinne, you had with her. I was listening to her talk about her sabbatical. What stood out to me was 
how amazing an experience it was for her. This ability to just sit down and savor a glass of wine, sit down and do nothing for a bit and truly refresh mind and body and spirit and just engage in all these activities that we as professionals can relate to being put aside day after day in the pursuit of inevitably what's a longer and longer to-do list. And one, I was just so happy to hear that she took that opportunity for herself. Secondly, that she role modeled it for the entire leadership team. And that's a thing at their organization that they all do it and it's celebrated. But then the flip side of it was it was so saddening. On the other hand, to listen to some of the statistics that she was quoting about how despite sort of these proven scientific benefits for performance, peak performance at workplace, especially for senior executives, that still women aren't taking it or are penalized much more than their male counterparts for taking it. And it just feels like, gosh, again, we shouldn't be having this discussion in 2023 with the abundance of data. But here she was telling us the pay penalty, the seniority penalty for this absolutely critical stage to be able to take a sabbatical. And so at the same time, I felt happy, but then just a little bit sad, you know, on how it's playing out in corporate America. What stood out for you in this riveting conversation? It took tremendous strength and confidence for her to say, oh, yes, I'm going to take control as CEO of Girls Who Code in the middle of the pandemic. It's kind of astounding to even take that on board at that moment in time. And just so many question marks, so many unknowns, so many things she just didn't know what they were up against. All the different pivots and different examples that they had to go through in order to figure out, like, how can we make this work for every individual? And in a sense, it was like a key learning. They could each go their own pace. They didn't have to like be in one classroom together and working all together on the same work. They could go as slow or as quick as they wanted to go. Some of them were obviously more efficient or better coders. Some of them needed a little bit more time on certain topics. Sort of taught them some key things and key learnings that it seems like it's really enabled them even today. Well, that's all for today. This has been season two of In Her Element, a podcast from BCG. Join us in season three to hear meaningful conversations with women leaders in digital business and technology. Thank you so much for listening.